welcome to another episode of the Karis on Crime podcast series. I'm your host, Beth Karras. Karis on Crime is the place to explore criminal justice issues and cases in the news. And I welcome your feedback, your questions and ideas. Post them in the forum on Karis on Crime or on social media. My Twitter handles are at Beth Karras and at Karis on Crime. And my Facebook page is my name, Beth Karras. Now, from time to time, we discuss what could be and sometimes is proven to be a travesty of justice with the mistaken arrest and wrongful conviction of an innocent person. And today we're focusing on the case of a man who's been in prison for a double murder for more than 30 years, um, murders he says he did not commit. Now, Chuck Reed, today's guest, was a lead investigator on the case in the early months. This is the case of Jens Soaring and the 1985 murders of Nancy and Derek Hasem in Virginia. Now, at the time the Hasems were murdered, Jens was a student at the University of Virginia. His girlfriend was Elizabeth Hasem, the daughter of Nancy and Derek. And by the way, true crime TV shows have focused on this case from time to time, but there's new information now to talk about. So how and why were the Hasems murdered? Why did Jens confess and then recant? And why does today's guest, Chuck Reed, believe an innocent man is in prison? We've got lots to talk about, so let's get to it. Welcome, Chuck. Uh, Hello, how are you? Great. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to me for uh, for Karis on Crime today. So take us back to um, to the murders when they happened. You were an investigator. Did you go to the scene? Did you get the report right away? What what was it like? This was when April, end of March, nineteen eighty five. It was April third, uh, Wednesday afternoon, that we got the call, um, and I guess I arrived as well as a few other investigators and officers. I'm guessing around 5 o'clock in the afternoon at the Hastings residence in Boonesboro. Uh, when I walked in the door and saw the crime scene, I had, it was a shock. I had worked uh, several homicides prior to this particular one, and I hadn't seen anything to this extent before. Um, what's so ironic the week prior to, I was at the house and I was watching the movie Hells of Skelter about Charles Manson. And lo and behold, three days later, I walk into this. Uh, and, of course, the first thing hit me was, you know, what gang of people came in here and did this kind of damage? So describe, what was the scene like? Describe it. Uh, it was just bloody. It, I, I kind of characterize it as, as kind of like a slaughterhouse, if you want to be truthful about it, like something from a horror scene. It's in the dining room. It was just blood smeared all over the floor and, and just splattered around. Mr. Hasem, as you stepped in the front door and would turn to the left, as you would go in the dining room, he was lying there in the doorway uh, with a... Basically, they were both almost decapitated. Uh, and then once you step into the dining room, that's where the majority of the blood was. And Miss Hasem, as you go through the dining room into the kitchen, she was lying in the kitchen floor, uh, her throat cut was 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 cut the same way as Mr. Hasem. Um, he was stabbed uh, around forty times. Uh, she was stabbed, uh, I think, approximately six or seven times. Um, Could you tell from the scene, first of all, how long they had been there, and what had they been doing at the, at the time? Like, was there food on the table, or how were they dressed? Well. Uh, 
he was dressed in casual clothes. Miss Hasem, she had appeared as well as I remember, she had a gown and a and a, a bathrobe on or nightgown on. Um, it was a small plate, two plates sitting at the at, uh, on the dining room table as if they had uh, somebody been there eating. Um, and to me, from looking within the, the the dining room area, the way the chairs were put out, it appeared to me that maybe some other people were had been sitting there. Now, whether she kept the chairs, the dining room chairs, away from the table, sitting around the room, you know, I can't say. It's just my perspective. It, it was like they were set the, the way the chairs were sitting. If you looked at the, the crime scene, as if maybe someone was there sitting in the chairs, like they were talking. Not to say that they were. That's who was just my perspective at looking at the crime scene. Uh, there was no furniture or anything in, in, in the dining room to where this occurred. Uh, turned over, uh, nothing knocked off shelves, off the tables. To me, it was as if that's where I came back to the fact of thinking it was a group of people, or more than one. It was like that everything was contained in the dining room and it was enough there to take control of Mr. and Ms. Hasem uh, without causing a big disturbance. Was there any sign of forced entry? Any no obvious motive? whatsoever. Uh, and we checked. It was a little closet-type thing under the, in the living room, which was actually under the steps, uh, for Ms. Hasem's pocketbook. We found her pocketbook, which had cash in it. There was nothing, no money or anything taken. And we couldn't find where anything was taken from the house at all. So it wasn't an obvious burglary. It wasn't a break, a forced break-in. No, there was no forced break-in. You know, when we got the information, the first, because he he was uh, from they, were, they came over from South Africa, and that was back during the apartheid. Well, uh, he, he worked in steel and. He came over here. Well, the first thing hit me, and some of us were thinking, okay, did a group of people come from over there and have something against Mr. Hasem and come in here and do this? Uh, it, it was just one of those. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a normal murder crime scene type thing that I had worked before. I mean, it was, and then we find out it was such an international. They had been around. You know, it was like looking for a needle in a haystack. Nothing you know, obviously to, stolen. Excuse me? Nothing was obviously stolen. Nothing was obviously stolen. Okay. It was like somebody, the first thing you would look at is say, somebody has something personal against these people. Okay, so... They were focused. Whoever came in was focused directly on Mr. Ms. Hasem to do this kind of damage to him. So where did you look? We, uh, as far as investigation-wise... yes. The first thing we did, we came out and in a group of us, we got in front of that. We walked down the main road all the way down to probably a half a mile down to another main road, uh, looking, checking side ditches uh, for any kind of murder weapon or anything that might have been thrown out of a car, which we found nothing. Uh, then we just went out through the neighborhood and talked to the people in the neighborhood. We probably covered between Lynchburg and Boonesburg and the Bedford area. I can't tell you how many people we talked to. It's just numerous of people. Anybody and everybody that we thought would have any kind of connection or have any knowledge whatsoever of the family. Any leads? Uh, No leads. Uh, Again, they were, 
they were had been around and so international and, and been around to different countries. It's, you know, you, you get to thinking, you know, you got to go everywhere. Uh, and of course, then at that time is, uh, also the FBI was called in, um, to do a personality profile. They were called in about, I would say the next day or maybe within two days from the time we originally got the call. Uh, they were called in to do a personality profile, which, um, at that time, their conclusion was that it was a female in an acquaintance with the family. Well, the Hastings had a daughter, Elizabeth, uh, and then they had uh, some sons from separate marriages. Um, so we started with the family, naturally. That's what you do and start eliminating people. Uh, and even the family members had no clue, except for one of the sons, particularly... Dr. Howard Hasem, he came up, he was pretty adamant about the fact of, of his sister Elizabeth being involved in it. Now, was Elizabeth a half-sister or a full sister? She was a half-sister. Yeah. yeah. So they shared the father. Correct. All right. So did you, t- you talk to Elizabeth, I assume? We talked to, um, so the original homicide squad was called in originally, and which is, Actually, different jurisdictions around here, different other counties, would would send in one or two investigators in, which we had what we call the the Regional Homicide Squad, to help us out. Then we were paired up with a particular individual. So Ricky Gardner was paired up with uh, Debbie Kirkland, who she was at that time an investigator for Lynchburg Police Department. Those two originally talked to Elizabeth. Um, I was paired up with another Lynchburg detective, uh, Carol Baker, and we, what we would do, they would give us certain uh, areas to cover, certain people to talk to. They would give you a form and say, we'll go talk to so-and-so, and then we'd go through the neighborhood and get what information we could. We would come back, turn it in, they'd give you something else, you'd go back out and follow up on that one. Uh, I never particularly talked to Elizabeth at that time. Now, later down the road, Myself and Ricky Gardner met her in Charlottesville to get her fingerprints and footprints. Uh, but we never had a long conversation with her there as far as what you say in an interview. Um, but the whole time, any any dealings I had with Elizabeth, I mean, even from the time I saw her when she first came in to be interviewed that night when she was interviewed by Ricky and Debbie Kirkland, she has, she never showed any remorse whatsoever. Never, ever showed any remorse. She was just as cool and calm. So as an investigator, you know, I started looking at things like that. You know, you take that in consideration. That, um, that she, if she's cool and calm, that she had nothing to do with it. Is that what you mean? Well, not necessarily. No, I would look at it as a fact of when you, when you have both your parents murdered, much less in the situation that they were murdered, but yet have no no reaction, act like if nothing has ever happened, like it's no big deal. That that concerned me somewhat as far as Elizabeth was concerned. Got it. Uh, <clears throat> and of course, at that particular time, we, we we hadn't talked to Yen Soren. I hadn't seen him whatsoever. We never talked to Yen or even laid eyes on him until probably what, four or five months later, the first week in October, when we he came in to meet with myself and Gardner to interview. Now, why did you call him in? 
because he, we knew that he was boyfriend, uh, he was Elizabeth's uh, boyfriend, and they were acquaintances. So naturally, we wanted to talk to any acquaintances we wanted to talk to to try to eliminate them. What was your impression of Jens when he walked in four or five months after the murders? The first thing I saw off when he walked in, it was a Sunday afternoon when he walked in her office, was I was, to be honest with you, I was kind of floored. After dealing six months over there and walking in and seeing that crime scene and what was done to these two individuals, then to see this at that time, he was 17 years old. When he walked in her office with, uh, I mean, just a little young, geeky-looking kid with these thick glasses on, I'm thinking to myself, I don't think this little man's ever been in a fight in his life. Much less get over there and fight with these two people and do this kind of damage and come out unscathed. I, I was just, I was kind of floored. I'm thinking to myself, this, I, I just can't see this, this young man doing this kind of damage. Not to two people. Not by himself. That was my first impression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when I first got my reservations about Yen Soaring being the culprit in this thing. Now, we know that uh, that he ultimately gets convicted and you know is sent to prison for life, but but you weren't arresting him that day. What what happened? Well, no, we we no, we couldn't arrest either one of them. We had no physical evidence on either one of them whatsoever. Well, what evidence did you have from the scene? Well, see, at that particular time, we just we of course you know the evidence technicians were called in, which I didn't, I wasn't dealing with that. Uh, we had evidence techs to come in, and they took pictures, swab for the blood and fingerprints, and all this. Uh, all that was sent to the lab. And a lot of this lab information came back actually after I had left the department uh, a year later and was gone for the two and a half years. Um, then I find out the results about some of this lab results after I come back to the sheriff's office in 1989. Um, but I do know, I know we found the rental car. I went personally went to Charlottesville myself to process the rental car for blood. Um, I used luminol. I went down, I processed the car, brought the results back, turned it over to the uh, evidence people. They sent it to the lab, and the lab in return tested it, sent it back, and said there was no blood, negative for blood in the car. Can you explain, why were you looking at a rental car? Can you explain that connection? Well, the rental car, what it was, we found out that from talking to Elizabeth, she spoke with Ricky, and Debbie, that they had gone to Washington and rented a car. So we got copies of the, the rental car agreement, and at that point, that's when we when we called Yen's in. We, and during that time, we got to looking at the mileage on the rental car. We checked the rental car out, and the mileage it was like 429 extra miles on the car. You know, from going from Charlottesville to Washington, D.C. and back. Uh, then that kind of threw a red flag up. So that's when we started questioning Yens also about the extra mileage, and Elizabeth was questioned about it. And, of course, they said that they had gotten lost up in Washington and, and kind of made some detours to put the extra miles on it. So we felt the car was connected to possibly suspects and 
once the mileage came up and, you know, the, the profile came back, uh, and things pointed and, and just knowing about Elizabeth and, and she was, uh, known as a pathological liar and her stories changed so many times. And then once a week after we interviewed Yens, they leave the country, uh, that's when we things start more red flags start coming up. Right. So they so they leave and they flee and they're in Europe for like a year almost. Well, I think they leave in um, October 1985 and they're arrested in London in what's it, like June of 1986, right? Yeah, I think it was June. But getting back to that, I went down prior to speaking with him though. Once we found about the rental car, I went down and processed the rental car prior to that, and like I said, that's where we got the results back from the lab, that there was no blood found in the car. Um, so so if, then when they left the country, um, and then the trial came up in 1990. Right, now that's Jens's trial in 1990, which, by the way, was the first televised trial in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and that was that was the year before Court TV launched. Court TV, where I worked for 19 years, uh, launched with its first trial on July 1st, 1991. But there were televised trials elsewhere um, before Court TV, um, but that's just a side note. But um, yeah, ultimately, what comes out is that each of them, like Elizabeth Yens, they both say that they're they're in Washington, D.C., while the other one takes the rental car and disappears and apparently goes back to Charlottesville. She says he goes, he says she goes, yet the car doesn't have any blood in it. Correct. And it goes back to the fact, too, that, see, Jens's father was a, a diplomat, a German diplomat. And Jens, in his thinking, uh, and I think that's, that, see, this is all I think we find out later, that this had all been been brought up and planned, you know, six months prior or, or at the time of the murder, some somewhere in that area, that once she came back and admitted to killing her parents to Yens, uh, what he's saying, then he feels like, uh, and it, it, you know, and I can uh, I can understand it completely, that his father is a diplomat. Okay. Well, she's going to end up getting the death penalty if she is convicted and found out. So, okay, I care enough for her that, you know, I'm going to be, be her savior. I'm going to, I'm going to take the rep because then I can get sent back to Germany, pull seven, eight years or whatever it may be in a juvenile system and I'll be out and we'll be back together again. And that's, to me, that's, that sounds very feasible for a young man like that. So, so basically, because his father's a diplomat, he's going to get some sort of special status, and he's going to get prosecuted in Germany, or at least sent back there for his sentence. He's going to do just a handful of years because of his age. I think he thought he would be out in like six years. So he says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the fall for you," and he tells the police he did it. Right. Uh, and of course, uh, then he finds out after the fact that that's not the way it works, that he's going to be held accountable and he's going to get the death penalty. Well, of course, in uh, June of 86, uh, she, Elizabeth also admitted to, to committing the crime about the same time he did. Um, and then you go back and look at the, the evidence as far as 
even though he admitted to it. And it, it like I say, it, to me, just knowing the individual from that first time I met him and looking at him, uh, I think he was so mesmerized with Elizabeth that, yes, to me, knowing that if he could get by with just a few years and get sent back to Germany and they could be back together again, uh, yes, I would think he would do it uh, in order to keep her from the death penalty. So, but then you go back and look at the fact of, okay, well, he confessed to it. She confessed to it. So let's go back and look at the evidence. There's nothing, no physical evidence even to this day that puts you in soaring at the crime scene. Well, let's, yeah, so let's, let's talk about that in a second, but let's step back and look at the big picture here. Um, well, first of all, if Elizabeth did this, why did she do it? What was her motive? Do you know? Well, you know, it goes back to the fact of when we originally got into it. You know, we, we interviewed people who knew her and different ones, even some of the family members. She was, she was a strange individual. She, she made it plain and, and she made no bones about it. She despised and hated her parents. And she made a statement that she wished they were dead. Um, but she's, she says that they just kind of kept a stranglehold on her. Uh, well, you got to realize she was 20 years old. You know, they had really no control over her. She didn't want them to. Um, but then, then she, her statement was that, okay, she told Jens that they did not, uh, agree with, uh, her seeing him. And that's what caused him to come back and supposedly kill him. Well, but didn't didn't she also say that her mother sexually assaulted her for years? I don't know if there's any truth to that, but yeah. See, that's that's what I was going to get to. Oh, see, sorry, that, her story has changed, uh, you know, so many times. And because uh, I never could figure out how she could be held as a credible witness to begin with, but. Uh, to where Yen's story has never changed. Once he come back and said, well, no, you know, I, I didn't do it. I was the only reason I said I did is I wanted to take the rap for her so she wouldn't get the death penalty. Well, all, over these years, his story has never changed, but she has changed I don't know how many times. Well, here recently, well, last September, she came out in an interview and says, well, she admitted that she, again, that she lied back in 1990 at the trial, that that the reason her parents are dead is not because they disliked Ian Soaring, it's because that of the eight years of sexual abuse that she had gotten from her mother and her father didn't do anything about it. So now she's coming out and actually admitting to the fact that they're dead because of this sexual abuse to her, not because of what she originally testified to. Now, when, you, when you're saying testimony, you're not talking about her own trial, because she pled guilty to accessory I'm before the about fact. I'm this trial when yep. she testified against him. Mm -hmm. okay. and, and also, go back to my first impression of Yen's. If anybody listens to her statement that she made when she testified in 1990 at his trial, she states under oath right there in the trial that she can't see Yen Soaring doing something like that. She said, I, she just couldn't believe it, said he was always a wimp. She said, I can't see him doing something like that. And I think a lot of people really hadn't paid any attention to that, but basically she's looking at it just like the same impression that I got 
from day one. She's admitting herself. Even though she's testifying against him that he did it, she turns right around on trial and and says, well, she can't see him doing it because he's always been a wimp. Hmm. And when you said that she um, confessed to it back, you know, 1986, she she quickly recanted, right? Didn't one of the police officers say, excuse me, what are you saying? She said, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, something like that. Well, see, that's that's what concerned me. Was she confessed to it to her, uh, a British detective. And when she says, well, no, he t- he said something to her. She says, he said, well, you knew that Jens was going to kill your parents, didn't you? And she said, well, no. She said, I did it myself. I got off on it. And then he comes back and he says, well, don't be silly. Uh, she said, well, no, I was just being facetious. So you think about that. She was making something funny out of her own parents being murdered. Mm-hmm. Again, that, that tells me something with no remorse. But at that point, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, when somebody confesses, all they got to do is say, I did it. Well, then you go back. That's where, to me, somebody should have followed up and looked back on the evidence on compared to her and the evidence that compared to Yen's at the crime scene. So so let's talk about the evidence. So what was it that ended up, you know, con- getting Yen's sorry, convicted? Okay, what got him convicted was they pushed the fact of the O-type blood that was found at the crime scene and that bloody sock print. Well, of course, the bloody sock print that was analyzed not by uh, experienced or professional expert in fingerprint or footprint impressions. It was done by tire expert. So, again, there were so many experts out there in the field of fingerprints that the defense, the end of the attorneys, didn't call anybody in as rebuttal uh, against that testimony. But they never, never said, actually come out and said, well, no, they couldn't prove that that was Jen's footprint 100%. They just said it was similar. What, what, what is it about a sock print? I mean, I can understand a shoe print. You've got some sort of distinctive tread and then an actual footprint. You've I'm got saying, marks. But I mean, a sock, a sock. Well, this, this, that's, that's my whole point. This uh, individual, this tire impressionist says it was similar to his. They could not 100% say that it was his. But if you go back and talk to any of the experts that has reviewed this case, I'm talking about real experts in fingerprints and footprints, they will tell you now that that was just basically rubbish. I mean, it, that, that would not be held up in a court today. It's not scientifically, uh, it just can't scientifically be proven. Because what, what you're doing with the sock print is you're just, you're taking basically or you're estimating the shoes, the foot size, the shoe size, right? Think about this, the way I look at it, too, and as an investigator. Uh, now, what type of sock did he have on? As an investigator, when I look at that, okay, there's, there's a sock print. This person had on a sock. Now, did he have on a wool sock? Was it a nylon sock? you got different thicknesses in socks. So when you get material soaked with blood, just like a, a dish rag, you soak it in water, it's going to expand somewhat. Even if it's a sixteenth of an inch, it's going to expand just slightly. So that's my whole point. You can't one hundred percent say, "Oh, I couldn't." As an investigator, if I, if it was left up to me to go get a warrant for someone just on that footprint and sock print, 
and I couldn't prove it and say 100% that was the individual, I would not go ahead and get a warrant for him. That's the same thing as me, as you being assaulted, and I ask you, well, can you identify the individual that assaulted you? And you say, well, yeah, I think I can. Then I get a lineup of 10 people that match the description of the person that did it. Then all of a sudden you come in and say, uh, I don't know, this person right here looks similar to it. And I'm going to say, well, are you 100% sure? Well, no, he just looks similar. Well, this is over and done with. I can't mm-hmm. get a warrant for that right. to prove my case. That's right. Unless I go in a courtroom and say, well, yes, Judge, uh, she said it looks similar to this guy. You're listening to the Kerosene Crime Podcast series. It's time for a quick break. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back to the Karis on Crime podcast series. I'm Beth Karras, and today I'm talking to Chuck Reed. He's a former deputy sheriff in Virginia who now believes that a man incarcerated in his state is innocent. So at the time of this investigation, they weren't doing DNA analysis, right? So it's blood typing, A, B, A, B, and O. Correct. So you you said there was O-type blood at the scene, and that's Jens's type of blood. It's very common. Right. Well, let's go back and then, of course, the closing arguments of the prosecution when it came to the footprint, which, again, I, with all due respect, I felt was somewhat misleading because of doing the, the argument, the closing argument, he told the jury that, you know, speaking of Jens, his blood, O-type blood was found in the house at the crime scene. His footprint was found in there. Well, that's where I got a problem because, no, it through the hearing and through the trial, it was plainly stated they could not 100% say that was his footprint. But yet in the closing arguments, the Commonwealth told the jury that it was his footprint found in the house. So I felt that was a little misleading there. So, again, between that and the blood, uh, now you, you go back nowadays. See, I had my reservations during that time, and then, then last year, when they came up, and then, of course, as you know, DNA wasn't available back then. I think if it had been, Yen Soaring, would, we wouldn't be discussing him today. Not Yen's, anyway. Right. Because I think he would have been cleared. But now it's 100% proven DNA says the O-type blood is not his. It belongs to a male, but not Yen Soaring. Now, since then, it's come back as far as the AB blood, which all these years was soon was Miss Hasem's. Well, she had AB, but now though it's come back with DNA testing that that AB belongs also to an unknown male that was in the house. So what you're talking about now is the new information since last summer, since July or so of 2016. Correct. That has done, basically people say, well, you know, when did you come to this conclusion? As again, I'll tell everybody that, you know, I've had my reservations and doubts over the years, but of course, again... You know, when the, after the trial went through, I said, well, you know, you know, it's over and done with. But that, that never changed my reservations about the way I felt about it and by looking at the evidence that was involved. But now when all this came out, to me, all that's done is just reinforced my reservations and pretty much says to me that I'm right. That Ian Soaring was not involved in the murder of Mr. and Ms. Hazen. So... So I just want to go back again. The evidence that convicted him, well, it was his confession, too. His confession, even though he recanted it, was used against him. Correct. 
uh, and there were problems with his confession in that it didn't really comport with the evidence, right? Like he, when he was asked what Nancy Hasem was wearing, he had the wrong, you know, he didn't say she was wearing a nightgown and a bathrobe and the position of bodies. I mean, he just, he didn't have the facts right. He says, now, I mean, I wasn't there. I didn't know. That was used against him. O-type blood, which now has been discounted because it was not, it's not his genetic profile. It's a male genetic profile, but not yet in soaring. And the AB blood that Nancy Hasem also, it's, it's her type. There's AB blood of another male, unidentified. And then the sock print, which has been um, discounted as junk science uh, today. So, and one of the jurors, I read an article that a juror, I don't know, sometime in the last few years, named Jake Bibb, uh, mm-hmm. said that the sock print is what convinced him to convict Yen Soaring. And according to him, actually six of the 12 jurors would probably was was gonna wasn't gonna find him guilty up until that sock print deal came up. Wow. And that's what pretty much convinced them. But I mean I, I guess my thing was I was always wondering what happened to uh, beyond a reasonable doubt here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh and again I'm I want you to understand I'm speaking for myself. I mean this is as a as a uh experienced investigator and been heavily involved in the case. I'm speaking for myself and from from what I see of a crime scene and the way I analyze things, uh, not to take away from anybody else. I mean, they've got their own thing, but I, I, I've always I can I've always done my own thing and thought for myself. But the other investigator on the case, Ricky Gardner, who had worked this um, through throughout, who had worked the case, um, he still believes in Jens's guilt, right? Well, last I heard anything, I mean, he's adamant. He said that basically he'll just. He'd go to his grave saying that, you know, that there's no doubt in his mind that Yen Soaring is, is the culprit that I, killed him. In the face of this new DNA evidence, though, it's... Well, I haven't heard anything from him since then. I'm, my understanding that the our local new Commonwealth attorney advised him not to make him, this was back last year, advised him not to make any more, do any more interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, understandable. Now, now Jens has been up for parole several times. His twelfth parole hearing was late last year, uh, and he's awaiting a decision on that. But that parole hearing was a little different from past ones because this time the parole hearing was longer and allowed his attorney to uh, present this DNA evidence, this evidence of innocence. Because you know Jens has exhausted his appeals, right? Correct. Yeah. Well, you know. And another thing, people ask me, they, you know, well, I've heard comments, uh, certain people from the news media would ask, you know, well, why are you coming out now? You know, well, Chuck's not coming out now. Nobody come to me, uh, 20 years ago. Now, you know, like I said, I had a life to live, you know, even though I disagreed and had my reservations, I mean, it went through the court system. It was done. Only, the only thing I could say, well, I just, I feel like there's a problem here. But I had a life to live, so I went on. And if people would come around who ever want to discuss the situation, I would talk with them and I would tell them exactly how I felt about it. So, but otherwise, what little bit of information I had uh, that I kept as far as my field notes, copies, had been in my basement for over twenty years. And then all of a sudden, probably two thousand nine or so, is when. Uh, TV programs come around like Paula's on, uh, this Wicked Attraction, and different ones would come around was doing TV shows. I guess kind of like court TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, 
because I would, at that time, you know, they would ask me, well, I'd pull what little bit I had just to kind of refresh my memory a little bit. And um, I would lay it out to them. Of course, you know how the system works. You know, they would film for six months or a year. Well, you know, when the time comes for it to be showed, once it's edited and everything, you never know what's going to be put in what's not. So a lot of things I told them, as I've told everybody else, was edited out and not put in for some reason or the other. I guess they wanted to gear, you know, time-wise, whatever they had to do. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, I didn't go around and preach the fact. I understand that that Ricky, over the past 20 years or so, carries a file around in his briefcase and talks to people about it. Well... To me, it was just another homicide. I'd worked homicides before. It was just out of the ordinary, but it was a homicide. So I worked it. I got on with my life. I didn't agree with the outcome, and I still don't to this day, and more so now with this DNA. But, uh, again, I I had no reason to go to anybody. And if anybody come to me, like, well, like you, for instance, and different people, uh, news media that was interested, then I would talk to them about it. But I didn't go out of my way running around telling everybody what Chuck Reed thought mm-hmm. unless they come and ask. Mm-hmm. And then when these people started coming around to do these interviews, and I brought this thing out about the FBI profile, about me not finding any blood in the car, and different things like that, all of a sudden, here lately, this about two years ago, is when Yanda's attorneys saw some of this stuff, I'm assuming, the way I understand it, and wanted to follow up, and that's when they got with Karen and Marcus, and and they heard about me and some of this stuff, too, that supposedly wasn't brought out in court. Then that's when they started coming to me and asked me, you know, would you be willing to do this? And sure. So Please Karen and Marcus, me. let's talk about Karen and Marcus. Karen Steinberger and Marcus Vetter are Germans. They made a film. Uh, they're journalists. They made a film called The Promise, a documentary. Uh, that is, uh, that made the rounds of film festivals in the United States. I saw it when it was in New York last year, late last year. Uh, it's been in Europe and it's going to hopefully be available in the United States sometime, maybe later this year, but it's going to be available in Europe at some point, uh, you know, more widely available, not just film festivals. And it's a, you know, it's a long, uh, documentary about this case. Correct. Letting the listener, I mean, the the, or the um, viewer reach his or her own conclusion, but, you know, the evidence is what it is. I mean, you know, you've got this DNA evidence now, and you've got Jens, you know, recanting a long interview with Jens, explaining why he was taking the fall for her. Um, and Well, and another thing, as I said, I, um, Jens has contacted his attorney, uh, of course, last year, a lot of part of last year, and, uh, of course, that's when they... He knew too that I I had decided to step up, and I wasn't going to go back and hide in the corner just because maybe Ricky or the public didn't like what I had to say or you uh, had their own ideas. I'm not that kind of person, you know. I wasn't going when somebody comes and ask, I'm going to tell you how I feel, what I observed, and this is why I feel the way I do. So Yens asked his attorney if I would mind coming down with him to see him, coming down with his attorney to see him, said he would like, he hadn't seen me over 30 years, he'd like to talk to me, and uh, once he found out I was standing up here and coming out with this stuff, so I agreed to. So back, I'm guessing maybe 
September or October or sometime of last year, I went, I got with the end attorney, went with him down and, and I spent, we spent about two, two hours and I talked with the ends. First time I talked to him in over 30 years, but I wanted to do it. And because I had some questions I wanted to ask him that I didn't get to ask him 30 years ago. So I asked him about, um, which was brought up in court that he supposedly cut his hand during the scuffle over there. So I asked him, I said, well, let me, do you have any scars? Let me, cause, you know, he was aware of all this naturally. I said, well, let me see those scars on your hand, or do you have any? And uh, he showed me two little scars. One of them, I like, he had to point it out. I couldn't hardly find it on one of his fingers. He said it, that he did that when he was a little child doing something I can't remember. But then he showed me another place on his index finger, about half the size of a dime. And he said that where he had a wart removed. Uh, but Otherwise, as far as any injuries, there was no injury on his hand. So these are the scars that he pointed out a year after the murders or, yeah, more than a year after the murders when they get caught in, in England uh, as, as you know, his sort of, you know, residual effects of the, of the murders. He says, yeah, I, I did these, uh, I got these scars during the murders. Well, what happened, I think Gardner had asked him about it. He didn't bring it out himself because, see, what happened a year later is when an individual made this report to Gardner that uh, he was at the wake of Mr. and Ms. Hasem in 85, and Yens was there and had his hand bandaged up and supposedly had a black eye. Uh, well, then you go back to, just like Yens said, too, and it's common sense. You go back and think, well, I can remember nobody, no one in that family. He spent the whole week with the family, plus Dr. and um, Ms. Massey. Ms. Massey's the one that actually found them, uh, spent the whole week with those people. And nobody ever brought that up. Nobody ever said a word. And believe me, if Howard Hasem, especially Howard, and even Annie, if they would have noticed anything like that on Yens, we would have been told about it. So this person who made that report to Ricky Gardner, you think, was simply mistaken or lying or something? I, I would assume so. Yeah. I mean, I would have to think so. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to say he's lying, but maybe mistaken, but... Regardless, I mean, when you spend, you know, right after the, that murder, and then you spend a whole week with this individual who they really, the family really didn't know. Uh, and if, you know, when you suspect, if you're a family member and you expect your sister to be at the crime scene and then say, well, maybe her boyfriend was there too, but wait a minute, he's got a black eye, he's got a bandage on his hand and all this. To me, I know Howard Hasem well enough to know that Dr. Hasem, one of the sons, Who's pretty much spent a lot of time with us on this investigation? He was pretty. He was adamant that Elizabeth had something to do with this. To me, he would have come and said something, but nobody ever mentioned anything else ordinary with Yens. Right. Or okay. maybe when Ricky Gardner talked to Yens about that, he was just making it up. I mean, you're allowed as a police officer to use to to, to lie. You well, know, Supreme Court says yes. Yeah, Supreme Court says you can lie to them to get a confession. I, I never like doing that. I always try to get it on my own or either have enough physical evidence to prove my case on them. But, you know, the thing of it is, um, I don't think, and then when they had the trial, Yen's trial, that's when they got Yen's down to walk over and show the jury the scars on his fingers or something, the way I understand it. Mm. Yeah. Um, but like Yen's told me when I talked to him, also down there that day, he said, Mr. Reed, he said, number one, he said, I wasn't raised that way. He says, I was always known as 
somebody who's going to make something out of themselves and some little geek. He said, I wasn't raised, I wasn't in a habit of walking around cutting people's throat and mutilating people. He says that my parents had put enough money in a account for me down here that would have paid my way all the way through four years of the University of Virginia. But I got this Jefferson scholarship, so he pretty much had a free ride. He said, I had all this money. If Elizabeth wanted to get away from her parents as bad as she says she did, you know, I had enough money, I could have taken her anywhere she wanted to go. Why would I want to go over there and go through this and do this to these people? And also, he wasn't aware of the fact. See, Mr. Hasem was one of the fatal wounds to Mr. Hasem. He was stabbed right in the center of the chest, and the knife went through the chest bone to the heart. Mm-hmm. Some little guy like Ian Soaring to me, you're going to have to have a heavy-duty knife with a heavy-duty knife blade and a strong individual to come back with enough power to jab through somebody's chest bone to go into their heart. Did you ever find a knife? Or could you see if any, any knife was missing from a set in the kitchen? Yeah, but they, they came up first with a kitchen knife. But unless it's a large kitchen knife, I mean a big butcher knife, you probably know as well as I do, those little kitchen knives, the blades are so flimsy, they're going to break. Right, yeah. They're going to bend or break. They're not going to go through a chest bone. <laughs> and I just don't, I just don't think Yens would have had enough strength to do that. That's what I'm saying. And my question was also that what was Miss Hasem doing when, when Yens, or say if it was Yens or whoever, Mr. Hasem's throat was cut, his head almost cut off, his, he was stabbed almost 40 times. And what was Miss Hasem doing while he was doing all his work to Mr. Hasem? That's why you believe there's more than one person. Well, we know now from from the DNA. They're waiting for for him to Mm -hmm. her throat. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just it's just a lot of things that go through my mind that I just really have questions about. And back to that FBI profile, you say that you you consulted with the FBI like right after finding the bodies. By the way, you say it was April third, nineteen eighty five, when you find the bodies, but the murders were a few days earlier. I mean. It was reported they were found on the third Wednesday. Yeah. Uh, supposedly the murders happened the weekend prior. That okay, we're assuming Saturday. It could have been happened Friday night or Saturday. So, so that when you reach out to the FBI, they come back with this profile for you. First of all, Ricky Gardner says that he doesn't recall that happening, right? And there was never a report. This was never turned over to the defense. And their conclusion, the FBI conclusion, was was what again? Okay. Well, see what it goes back. Uh, Sheriff Wells last year. He was approached about it, uh, and, and he says that he knew Ed Sol's back, but he don't recall him being involved in the case. So, I mean, I know that he was. Ed Sol's back, if you saw the movie, I mean, he's in the movie. He said he did it himself. Um, and like I say, Ed Sol's back's well-respected. Uh, he's one of the first ones when this profile stuff just got started back in, in that time. And... Uh, he was, like I say, it was another agent with him who I lost contact with. I can't remember his name. Um, but I just remember going in the day that they were there. And that's how I met Ed and this other guy. But, you know, you, you know how it is. You walk in with a room full of investigators and these guys, they doing their thing and they would hand us something to do. And I'd go and say, hi, how you doing? And leave, go out and, and do my part. Mm hmm. So as far as um, anything else, you know, I don't know 
what they did after that as far as the paperwork or whatever. That, but I do know the Commonwealth Attorney because I have a copy. A copy was given to me, and I made a copy for myself that I kept over the years to where in June of 85, the Commonwealth Attorney was very aware of it happening. But yet Ricky don't remember it happening now. And what did the FBI conclude? They concluded it was a female and an acquaintance to the family. And Ed said, and the FBI says, that they were looking at the daughter because of the way Miss Hastings was dressed, that she was such a proper lady that she wouldn't allow anybody in that house that she didn't know some stranger dressed the way she was. And that's another thing that made me, and that's kind of the way I looked at it as far as Yen is concerned. So Yen hadn't known Elizabeth for about four months at that time. He met her at UVA. He met Mr. and Ms. Hasem one time. They went out and had lunch together and was together for about an hour. So I, then I go back and I, I think about it. You know, how could Mr. and Ms. Hasem, from meeting in Soaring one time for an hour, assume that he's not good enough for their daughter, the way Elizabeth is trying to say? What right. kind of determination did they come up with? So, uh, you know, Yen just didn't know the people well enough. So how could he generate enough hate to go in and do what kind of damage was done to these people? So what do you think happened? Well, the thing of it is, she was down the weekend before the homicide. She testified that she was down and all of her and her family, her mom and dad, went out and they just had such a great time together. Well, you know what? Let me just ask you before you go through that explanation. Where, what's the distance between where the Hasems lived in Bedford County and Charlottesville, where UVA is? Oh, probably, I'm going to say about, about an hour and a half drive. Okay. Uh, mileage, uh, let me think. I'm guessing probably maybe 80 or 100 mile difference. Okay, so you're saying Elizabeth was there the week before the murders? The weekend prior to the murders. Oh, oh. Okay, and uh, she said that that they went out and ate and they just had a wonderful time together. But she didn't testify to the fact that, and of course, Jens was telling me this, that she stole a bunch of jewelry from her mother that weekend that she was down in order to buy drugs with. So it goes back to the fact of, the cigarette butts, uh, the B-type blood that was found on the dish rag in the kitchen next to her mom's body. If there's no way Miss Hasem, the proper lady that she was and the way they lived, if Elizabeth would have done all that the weekend before, Miss Hasem would not have let that stuff laid out in that house like that. Anybody, especially most ladies, would have went around and taking the vodka bottle off the table in the living room and put it back where it's supposed to be, they, would have, they wouldn't allow her to throw cigarette butts down on the out at the front door of the house. Those were Elizabeth's types of cigarettes, right? But- That's what she smoked. Mm-hmm. Of course, she didn't smoke. I don't think she would have left a bloody rag, which was a small, just a drop of B-type blood on the dish rag hanging there in the kitchen next to her body, but I don't think she would have left that hanging there. Was Elizabeth the only one who had B-type blood? Anybody that we know of that we came up with. Got it. Okay. What, 10% of the total population has B-type blood. So that narrows that down a little bit. Um, 
And both of the Hasems, Derek and Nancy, had um, a, a pretty high alcohol content in their blood at the time of death, right? They did, but they were they were social drinkers, uh, which normally you get somebody like that that are social drinkers over a period of time. They're gonna you, you're gonna keep a certain amount in your system, and you're gonna be able to tolerate alcohol a little better than somebody else, right? Also, uh, but I don't think. It came out as far as the information we came up with that, uh, especially here recently, that Mr. and Ms. Hasem wasn't really vodka drinkers. I think they were more or less, uh, I can't remember, was it scotch, you know, some type. It wasn't vodka. It was their normal drink. Um, but it's just, it's just so many circumstances that if you, that's what I don't understand about, with all the respect to him, Ricky just can't step back and say, you know, look, 1985, all of us, we did everything we could do at the time with what we had to work with. We worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week trying to solve this case. But 30 years later, now that DNA is available and things are coming out that can prove this man's innocent, we don't want to turn a blind eye to it. Let's, let's let it work. See what happens, and let the chips fall where they may. That's the way I'm looking at this thing. Right, right. And uh, Elizabeth did not get away with this. She did not plead guilty to murder. She pled guilty to accessory before the fact and received two consecutive 45-year sentences. She's eligible for release in 2032. Correct. But But you believe she was there. And, yep. and participated in the murders or, or went with two other men or something? I do. I just, well, from day one, I've, I mean, of course, it's been 30 years. And, of course, I made comments to people back then. I've, I just, I've always felt, I said, I just, I've always felt that Elizabeth was, was there. How much involvement she was, but I think she was there. And she could have had just as much involvement as Jens or anybody else when it comes to that because she, as much hate as she had for, for her, her parents. But if she, um, if she did it, there was no, I mean, and she took that rental car and left Jens at, um, the hotel. He went to a movie. He's waiting for her. That's what he says in DC. There was, that was their alibi weekend in DC. She takes off in the car, goes back to Charlottesville, participates in the murder is a theory and comes back in that rental car and there's nothing in it. So, I mean, if she, no, in terms of blood, right? So well, she, she, to, she says when he returns, that uh, he was wrapped, he was wrapped in a sheet, and he was covered in blood from head to toe. Right, that, that sheet. When she's saying that he took the car and did it, and oh. there there would have been blood in it, right? Now he says she took the car and came back. Okay, but if she participated in the murders, there's no blood in the car. Okay, well, what she could have easily done, and which that's when this Mister Buchanan came out, an individual a couple of years ago. Uh, and which Ricky denies that too, and which is possible that Ricky don't remember. But Mr. Buchanan, an individual from Lynchburg who used to run a, a body shop, a, a garage in Lynchburg back during that time, he saw pictures, it's been about two years ago. He saw some, it came back out on news, I think about Ian's parole or whatever it may be. And he, he came out and he said, that's not, he said, he knew Elizabeth. He said Elizabeth came in down there. With another individual in a car, it had blood on the inside, the floorboard of the driver's side, mm. and it was a like a hunting knife. Mm. And the 
so-and-so. And he said that some of the guys that worked for him noticed that, but they just assumed it was like a deer hunter. Somebody had been deer hunting. But said that he was adamant that Elizabeth was the one came in because she's the one came up and used the credit card to pay for the car to be cleaned up or worked on or something. I forgot exactly what it was. And um, so that was my theory. And it you wasn't know, Jens. It wasn't Jens, the man. That she but, was yeah, no, no. He he said it was not. He saw Jens' picture, and he said it was not that guy. But he went, they pulled out another somebody. I don't know if it's Karen or Marcus or whoever with the German film crew or one of the attorneys got a yearbook from UVA, and he pointed out an individual uh, that it looked like that was with her, that mm. a good friend of hers and one of her drug dealers here locally out of Lynchburg. Uh, and he's adamant about that, but Ricky says that never happened, so the guy don't know what he's talking about. Uh, so I can't get into that because, I mean, I don't know. That's that's just This just came out recently. But my theory is, and it's very, it's plausible that she came down the weekend because she was heavy into drugs and she stole jewelry from her mother to buy her drugs with. Who's to say that she couldn't have come down, met some individuals here in Lynchburg, left the car, the rental car, because it, it was rented in her name. So why take it over to the crime scene where it could be uh, identified and traced back to her? Maybe get with some of her drug dealers and people here in Lynchburg. Go over to the house. She goes over there maybe to steal some more jewelry from her mom. They have a confrontation, and then something happens during that time. And to me, that's plausible. Right. That's why no blood was found in the car, the rental car. Well, she'll never admit to any of this because... Just like Jens told me when I talked to him back last year he said he said mr reed he said if mr gardner if they had to put pressure on elizabeth when she admitted to it back in 1986 he said if they had to put enough pressure on her and that was my thing that he said that she would have broke but he said now you'll never come forward with it because number one it would screw up her parole sure also i mean not to go back you know rehashing some of the evidence, but there there was a hair found in a bloody sink that was not Yance's and it was not the victims and it was but it was never compared to Elizabeth, which I find really uh curious. Yeah, see I'm I'm curious about that. I don't know that's what I don't know why that see that occurred a lot of that stuff came out after I left and it was was off the case. A lot of that came back, you know, I think in uh eighty six. I'm not exactly sure, but you got to realize too, a lot of the, the evidence texts were handling all that kind of stuff. But uh, I, I'm lost on the fact of why that hair wasn't compared to her. Right. Now, I guess the only one can answer that is Ricky. If he can answer that, I have no clue. I don't know if he can answer that or not either. He probably don't know to the truth about it. Because he wasn't involved in sending this stuff to the lab. The lab text, I mean, the evidence text did that. So, I mean, you've given me a lot of your time. Uh, is there anything else I didn't ask you that that you want to mention? We can do it again if more, you know, information comes out. We can have a follow-up conversation, but uh, did we, we covered a lot. We, is there anything else? Well, the only thing, it just goes back to the fact of just what I look at, again, as being so heavily involved in a case and, and just 
and I was pretty successful in my career, not patting myself on the back, but as far as doing investigative work. Uh, I have nothing to gain or lose in this situation. But when it comes to fair and equal justice and due process, we got to do away with people's reputations and public opinion and politics. You know, we got to let the system work. And that's what, to me, that's what it's all about. Um, and with my information and my observations, I've, I tell it like it is, and then I just, people can take it for what it's worth. But I can't see you compare Yen Soaring and Elizabeth Haytham, who had the strongest motive of hate to go over there and mutilate and almost behead these two people. It wasn't Yen Soaring, but Elizabeth had made the point many, many times that she hated her parents and she wished them dead. So now you go back to the physical evidence. None whatsoever, nothing puts Yen Soaring at that crime scene or in that house. Go back to Elizabeth. Even though some of it's circumstantial, but you got her fingerprint on the vodka bottle, you got the same brand of cigarettes she smoked, cigarette butts Merritt, laying out there at the front door. Uh... You've got B-type blood found on a dish rag in the kitchen hanging up next to her mom's body. Elizabeth had B-type blood. Only 10% of the total population have B-type blood, which narrows it down. You have an unknown fingerprint on a shot glass. Now you have O-type blood there that's been proven by DNA, doesn't belong to Yen Soaring. Now you have AB blood that now proves that goes and belongs to some unknown male that was at the crime scene. So, you know, people can take all that and weigh it out for what it's worth. Well, you know, let's see what the parole board's going to do with it, because they are aware of this now. Um, and, um, you know, may factor into their decision. That's true. And again, uh, like I said before, you know, I, I don't go broadcasting with people come and ask. I, I, I tell you what I feel and in my opinion, and I'm not going to change just because people, certain people don't like it. I'm very adamant about it, uh, that Yen Soaring was not involved in that murder. But I'll always believe that Elizabeth Haysom was there in some fashion or the other, as well as other people. Didn't, one person did not do this, this job, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So... I hope things work out for the best. I'm just, again, uh, I have nothing to gain or lose in this situation, but I do have to live with my conscience. Well, I really um, appreciate your candor and all your information. It's really been enlightening. I just want to tell listeners that for more information about this case, you can check out Jens's website. It's jenssoaring.com, and it's J-E-N-S as in Sam, S again, O-E-R-I-N-G, yensoaring.com. Now, on the site, there's information about this film, this documentary we talked about called The Promise, uh, shown at film festivals uh, last year. Jens is a prolific writer. He has published a number of books while in prison. He's an amazing writer. Uh, and he has a book coming out in March called A Far, Far Better Thing about his this case. And it's co-authored with investigative reporter Bill Sizemore from Virginia, uh, and also in the interest of full disclosure, I have signed on to consult with Jens Soaring's team regarding media coverage 
uh, of his story when the book and film are released and also when he too is released. So again, Chuck Reed, I want to thank you for joining me today. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this latest episode of the Keras on Crime podcast series. I welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas. Post them in the forum on Keras on Crime or on social media. As I mentioned at the beginning, my Twitter handles are at Beth Karras and at Karras on Crime. You can also find me on Facebook on the page with my name, Beth Karras. Till the next time, be well. Thank you.